Live from the Voodoo Rooms at the Edinburgh Fringe, it's the Voodoo Varieties with Matt Ricardo. This one is something special. We devoted the whole episode to just one interview. I was lucky enough to sit down and chat on stage with legendary professional wrestler and New York Times best-selling author Mick Foley about his time in and out of the ring. It's a fascinating interview and he proved to be every bit as engaging, smart and funny as you'd think. Hope you enjoy Ladies and gentlemen, he is Cactus Jack, he is Mankind, he is Dude Love. Please welcome the hardcore legend, Mr. Mick Foley. Pretty emotional, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My mic working? Everything. We can hear you? You can hear me okay? All right. Yeah, that was a nice video. <laughs> it was the least violent one I could find. Yeah, it still it was had some violent, but with a with gentle song. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah the contradiction was, 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 it was really beautiful. Nice. <laughs> okay, we're going to get right into it. If that's okay with you. Sure, let's do it. So, why are you a wrestler? Why am I, or why was I? Well, I mean, uh, you were you were known as a yeah. wrestler. What made you choose that when you were young? You know what? Uh, I think it's the same thing that uh, has made me follow this uh, this comedy thing. It's that uh, reaction uh, from audiences, or tonight that lack of reaction. <laughs> uh, I did. I was a kid who always liked to get reactions, um, and I specifically remember, for example, um, being called the wrong name. Uh, by the girl of my dreams when I was a, a freshman in college, and uh, uh, the only way I knew to take out that psychological torment was to do something physical, which for me meant diving off a bed onto a stuffed animal. Uh, and uh, it was such a success that we decided to duplicate it uh, on film. At that time, it was eight millimeter cameras, which uh, needed a, a, a bright light, which attracted, for the first time, a lot of attention to my dorm room, especially from females. Like, they didn't even know that somebody lived down on that side of the dorm. But we had all these girls looking in, and when I did my dive, I surreptitiously took a little swig of uh, red food coloring. So when I hit the ground, I spit out that food coloring. And I remember, I mean, like, it was yesterday, I remember one girl going, that's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. (laughs) And deep down in my heart, I was like, I need to get more of that. <laughs> uh, that was just one reaction. Uh, that was the type of thing that drove me, was to be able to, uh, to do something uh, where I could uh, receive reactions for a living. And who, when you were that age, who were you wrestling heroes? Oh, well, the guy uh, who did the Superfly, uh, uh, Deathly, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, he was my hero at the time. Uh, there was a British wrestler named uh, Tommy Dynamite Kid Billington. I don't know why he's my hero. He hit me so hard I couldn't chew solid food for three weeks in uh, 1986. And then other guys, as I got in the business and learned about it, a guy like Terry Funk kind of became my my mentor as well. Cool. I think um, some people who who are not perhaps as familiar with wrestling as I can actually, I think everyone here is. Is everyone here? I mean, you know what happens when I ask for a show of hands? Some people don't like to volunteer. So, if you don't want to volunteer, can I have a show of hands? Uh, <laughs> so I won't go back to you. But largely, people are familiar with what I do. Yeah. Yes. Ah, cool. All right. Really? There is so many, the, the percentage of women in this room is so much higher than at any of my comedy shows. So, so come on. You're, you're coming out tonight? 
uh, to the cop my my show, or you meant you're just coming to the Voodoo Lounge? Sorry. Oh, <laughs> I was under the impression you were coming to my show. I come to you. It's still it's, it's halfway good. Uh, <laughs> no, my shows. Yeah, it's. Uh, I, I can really see uh, the love <laughs> when when a woman who obviously would rather not be there has accompanied her boyfriend, or <laughs> and then they end up they end up having fun. It's, I try to make it yeah. in inclusive, and it's really not uh, scary or mean humor at all. If it's any help, my wife is heartbroken that she is stuck in London and can't be here. I, um, but I, I, as, I, as I was saying, that the reason that, I mean, apart from the fact that you are, you know, fascinating and, and erudite, the reason that you are on this variety show is because, and we talked about this in the bar just now, the roots of what I do and the roots of what you do come from the same place. They come from carnivals. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, how many of you have seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang recently? Uh, <laughs> but everyone, you're familiar with it, right? At some point. Um, I watched it just a, a few weeks ago, family movie night, and uh, that song Dick Van Dyke sang called The Old Bamboo, which is like a direct takeoff on uh, the Mary Poppins, uh, what's the famous Mary Poppins song and dance that he did? Uh, Supercalifragilistic. No, not, which one? No, 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 this one went on way too long. It was like a long song and dance. This is only one of those no, I mean, it's nice that we know almost the entire <laughs> of Mary Poppins. You know, it, yeah, it might Seven be. Uh, it's Step in Time. And Step in Time went way, you know, it's like went way too long. And that's where I lost my kids. They never could, they never actually got through Mary Pop, as they called it. And then Step and then step in Time, and then this was called The Old Bamboo. It was like the same song with a couple of chord changes. And it, too, went on way too long. But he's in a carnival, and in the corner of the set is, is a wrestling ring. And I'm like, yeah, can't you see that? Wrestling began in the carnivals. So yeah, that, uh, and William Regal, who is our mutual uh, friend, yes, his career began in the carnivals in, uh, in Blackpool, England. So it's a you know, long tradition, and it uh, you know, moved away from that, but that's where its roots are. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, <laughs> this next question, I, I hope you don't take it. Uh, wrongly, it, it, it's basically an insult. Okay. Um, but, you know. um, All right, let me hear. <laughs> do what I can. What I've got here. I'm just anger and rage. Michael. Yeah. You don't look. What I've got written here is you don't look like most people's idea of a pro wrestler. Um, and I think what I mean by that is people who, again, are not wrestling fans. When you say professional wrestler to most people, they think of a massive steroided kind of jacked crazy psychopath type guy. And right. here you are... Brock Lesnar. Brock Lesnar. That's okay, who you think well. <laughs> And here you are, you know, um, I mean, what's your favorite kind of music? I know the answer to this question. Oh, well, I, I, not necessarily my favorite ki kind of music, but my favorite artist is someone who I will actually use, incorporate into my show tonight, uh, singing my favorite song, and that would be Tori Amos singing Winter. <laughs> Uh, Which is not perhaps a traditional pro wrestling answer to no. that question. You know? And it's not traditionally the type of song that one would listen to before their most dangerous matches. And, uh, that but you did? did. Yeah, if I had something really where, uh, you know, where I knew that you know, the, chance, the likelihood of being injured were good, uh, because I did some things that might be considered foolish. Just a <laughs> uh, yeah, I would slap on uh, the, the headphones, and uh, I would, uh, and it, it was only done on a handful of occasions. It wasn't like I always listened to that song, but uh, the fact that 
that song and the matches that they help create are, I mean, they're, they, they're kind of uh, uh, intertwined in a way that I can't have them, you know, remember the match without the preparation. So always very special. And she actually got her own chapter in my last book. So any of you who are thinking about being really nice to me, uh, you might get your own chapter <laughs> in an upcoming book. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, same. I wrote half of it while you were out. Awesome, <laughs> yeah. awesome. So talking of the books, how, how many is it now? What are we up to? Well, do we count children's books? Yes. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, I've got a new children's book coming out uh, for the holidays um, called A Miserable Christmas based on WWE uh, character The Miz. <laughs> it's uh, the school bully who learns a very valuable lesson from the new kid in the class, CM Punk. Uh, <laughs> he's calling him the new, the new kid. Hey, new kid, new kid, new kid. And, and it rhymes. And then he, he's all over CM Punk's case because when they're writing letters to Santa Claus, CM Punk's not writing anything. And he's like, no, I've got enough. <laughs> and, and Miz is like, hey, put that pencil on that page before I get real rough. Don't you know there's no such thing as having too much stuff? And then uh, Punk says, hey, when I need a toy, I'll ask for one. But an unneeded toy is junk. Cut out all that new kid stuff. My name is CM Punk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not very often that you read a children's book and you get goosebumps. <laughs> It's not often that a wrestler gets put over in a children's book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had to make sure. I got, I got Punk's uh, permission, uh, and then I didn't ask for Miz's permission. I just <laughs> went ahead and made him a jerk in my show. <laughs> but honestly, uh, when, I, when I submitted the book, and I don't know how we got segued into children's books, uh, they were really happy with it, but I asked them if they were okay with the only vaguely happy ending, that Miz didn't actually learn any kind of lesson. And, children are kind of left rejoicing at the sound of his sobs being heard echoing throughout the street. And they're like, well, we were wondering how you feel about maybe making it a little happier. And I sat down and I mean, I still feel, not that me saying, hey, this is the best six page I ever wrote, is like John Updike saying it, but uh, still, you know, I think you can, you can touch people in, in different uh, avenues. And the last few pages I wrote of uh, this miserable Christmas are pretty, pretty, pretty good. So. <laughs> Can I tell you a quick story about pretty, pretty good? You guys know the reference, right? Yeah. I did that in a London show, and people really, they, you know, they got it and they laughed, they understood it was uh, curbing enthusiasm. Uh, we were talking, uh, Kurt Angle, uh, Jay Lethal, and I were talking about a thousand school children in India. And it came time for me to answer my question, and I said something about pretty good, and I went, Pretty, pretty, pretty. And I can tell by looking at the kids that not a single kid has <laughs> yeah. And Kurt Angle leans over and goes, nobody knows what you're talking about. Uh, pretty, pretty. <laughs> Stop it, you're embarrassing us. <laughs> pretty, pretty. So I, I'm not at the point when I'm on stage and when I'm doing comedy, especially tonight, because I believe there's going to be some reviewers there and like, I kind of need to be good. I don't have the confidence yet where I can just stink up an entire place on purpose because it entertains me. When I get there, though, you'll, you'll know it. You'll know it. <laughs> so since we're talking about the books, how, how did that start? Were you, were you uh, writing before you decided to, to write a book? Well, in retrospect, when I, when I went back and looked at like, my old uh, college papers, there was actually um, you know, a, a 
one um, mark from a, a professor that said, you should really think about doing this for a living. At the time, I thought, that's ridiculous, because I'd already started training to be a wrestler, and that's what I thought I was going to do for a, uh, for a living. I didn't realize that the, you know, the, the physical toll that wrestling took would uh, result in humorous anecdotes that I could then write about. So it worked out that uh, uh, WWE was really popular. Uh, they hit you know, new, new levels that were unfathomable you know, just a few years earlier uh, to the point where they signed a three book deal. Uh, they had me go first because I think I was supposed to be a guinea pig. And uh, then they had the much bigger stars, The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin lined up. And they had a, a ghostwriter for me. And I spent like three days talking to the guy, and all of a sudden he had like five chapters written, and it was the worst stuff I ever heard in my life, you know? I mean, I, just really bad stuff. And, and just the idea that he essentially taken some words I said and then changed it and put it into his voice, it struck me, and this is odd coming a wrestler, but it struck me as being really, really fake. <laughs> and, uh, so I just, uh, I told my editor, uh, my publisher rather, that I thought I could do the book myself. And uh, it was like the silence was deafening. You know, just the idea of that it was just so preposterous. And I said, how about I write some, and if you like it, you know, we'll, we'll go with it. And uh, knowing it would be more difficult to turn down a lot of work, I sat up in the uh, upper deck of uh, the Tallahassee Civic Center in Tallahassee, Florida. I wrote for about three hours. And when I went downstairs to the dressing room, like I thought, I thought it was pretty good stuff, you know. But so does every writer that thinks their, you know, their stuff is good. Uh, and I asked a few of the wrestlers. I said, "Hey, you guys want to hear this, you know, stuff I'm working on?" And they went, "Yeah, a few of them, okay." And as I started reading, I was getting those reactions, you know. And it was like, oh, the wincing and kind of the laughing, and all of a sudden I had a group around me, and I was like, "This is like being in the ring without getting hurt." So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, we, we shocked the world. Nobody thought that the book would do anything. And it, you know, really uh, shocked me. It hit number one on the New York Times. Uh, and uh, I said, I have to apologize. I did say this line earlier uh, today, but I could have foreseen the problems that the U.S. has gone through by virtue of the fact that when my book was number one, it was on top of all the presidential candidates. <laughs> and ironically, or sickeningly, with the exception of one candidate, uh, Senator Bill Bradley, all of the other candidates had had their books ghostwritten for them. Whoa. So when you've got a wrestler doing his <laughs> own writing <laughs> and the future president of the United States letting someone else do it and then take the credit for it, your country's in tough shape. <laughs> so you used, you used the word, so you've used it, now I can use it, fake. Um, I think, for me, and I'd like to kind of come at this from a, a perspective of, of theatre, and I think a lot of people in this room are performers who work in cabaret and theatre, um, that for me, apart, I mean, obviously what I love about wrestling is all the same things everyone else loves about wrestling, yeah. but also, I think what's fascinating about it is that it, it is like my background, street performing, it's like cabaret that many of us here work in, it's like comedy, it's like these small underground theatre forms, in that if you don't know much about it, it's easy to dismiss it. Oh, sure. But the more you look, the more you see that it's working at a really complicated level. It's, it's high-level theatre. Someone, I, I talked to a, a British independent wrestler, actually, who, who reminded me that there are four performers in every wrestling match. The two wrestlers, the referee, and the audience. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah the audience is a, a vital part of it. And uh, there are times when they've, um, 
different companies have tried to have studio audiences. I mean, even, and I'm not picking on total nonstop action, um, be, be, because they were a, a great group to, to, to work for, and I should have appreciated them more while I was there. But that studio audience, it was just, it just sucked all the life out of the room, because it was a combination of really jaded wrestling fans who were there every other week, and people from Universal Studios who just wanted to get out of the heat. And so the reactions, even if they were chanting, this is awesome, it was like a pre-calculated chant. And it was so nice. When I finally went back to, to WWE, months before I actually returned on TV, I was doing a, uh, a, a comedy show in uh, Cork, Ireland. And I happened to be flying into Dublin the same day WWE was there. And so I called them up and I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Dublin. Like, can I just like show up? and?" have my music played. <laughs> uh, and so WWE performers are used to seeing familiar faces like at TV tapings. But I was in the in the uh, catering room and one after another people were coming in like doing the double tape. Like, what are you doing here? I was like, I'm the guest referee. And it was this cool feeling to go out there in front of like 12 or 13,000 people and then have your music played and get your name chanted in a way that was real. But oddly, like, I'll get as much satisfaction out of doing a show in front of, you know, dozens of people. It's got to be multi-dozens, you know. If it's yeah. less than a dozen, then you kind of feel a little odd about yourself, you know. But, uh, but as long as there's faces in the room and they're enjoying themselves, I mean, it's kind of like the same rush. Uh, and it goes back to what I started with. It's getting those reactions, whether it's, you know, 15,000 or, 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 or 25. Yeah. I, I um, whenever people talk to me about wrestling who, who kind of uh, dismiss my fandom of yeah. wrestling, they always think you know, the first thing is, oh, it's fake. And I, my response is always, yes, like Macbeth. You know, and it is like that suspension of disbelief. No one believes that yeah. Macbeth is happening, but you go in there and you buy into the theatre. Well, yeah, yeah. It's the same people. Like, well, why would you ever go to a movie? Like, you understand that Harrison Ford is not the president. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> they have credits rolling. You know, and at the end you see who did the stunts and who did the makeup, and so none of it was actually real. But if a story is well told, then there's that suspension, willing suspension of disbelief. And hopefully, you know, when we get in there, um, if we put on a good show, people willingly suspend disbelief because, you know, real violence. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the difference between UFC and, and WWE because UFC is an, is an art form in and of itself. But I'm talking about like to see someone attacked, you know, and, and bludgeoned. I mean, I don't want any part of that. Although I've been attacked and bludgeoned, on you know, on screen as well in ways that were way too realistic. But we try to give people like, you know, to suspend that disbelief so that they can, you know, say, yeah, well, think and not consciously think because the moment you shoot somebody into the ropes, you're kind of doing something that couldn't be done in an actual street <laughs> yeah. fight. But if a lot of the things that you do make sense and you can get people caught up in the character, then they will willingly take that trip with you. Indeed. And with that in mind, I'm going to show a very short clip here, um, which is probably my favorite moment in all of wrestling. I think it illustrates exactly what we're talking about. Uh, in this clip, physically, actually, nothing really happens. But it's incredibly powerful. I know, I, and I didn't, did not want to know what it was. No, so he didn't we'll, want to know, uh, so he doesn't know there's any more than you. So Is it a clip of me, though? It's a clip of you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's stone cold in the rock, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
That's the fake mankind, by yeah. the way, in the ring. How much more do you want from me? First, you take away my job. Then you bring this idiot out there. Then you take away my dignity. Then Monday night, you take me and you ruin my face. And I'll be honest, you're the best in the business right now. Because you are, without a doubt, the game. So it saddens me to say that after the meeting you gave me on Monday night, one thing mankind is not is ready to face you in a street fight at the Royal Rumble in Madison Square Garden. But I think the WWF fans deserve a substitute in that match. What I'm going to do, Triple H, is I'm going to name him right now. As a matter of fact, I think you know the guy. You go ahead. But, but because you were in the middle of complimenting me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but because all that happened was you took a mask and a shirt. Off. That's all that happened, and you revealed another T-shirt. But because the audience knew the mythology of the character you were yeah. shedding and the new character you're becoming, suddenly we believe you are now more powerful, and you can now be. That's an amazing yeah. thing to do. And it all hinged on, on Triple H's reaction. Yeah. Because if he'd gone, the same guy with the shirt on. Whoa! <laughs> 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 that would have been funny, though. And, then, <laughs> uh, and we actually we did a, a DVD where he was asked about that, and his answer to me was, you know, really very profound, simple, profound. He said, on one hand, it's the same guy, but it's not the same guy. Yeah. And it's like that's an answer that all the fans kind of got, you know. That shirt, you know, that shirt meant a lot. I'd like to point out I've got a new shirt for the fringe. Uh, I need one. This is the Mick Foley Cheap Pop T-shirt, and it's a little play. It's a, like a bottle of soda. Cheap pop. It's cheap yes. pop because I've been known to go to cities like uh, this one in Edinburgh, <laughs> Edinburgh, Scotland. <laughs> And get the cheap pop from the audience. So we've actually got the name of the. Uh, I got a cheap pop from Mick Foley right here, Dan Brooke, on the back of the shirt. So I hope they sell. Otherwise, uh, I'm, I'm out sure of luck. You'll yeah. sell. <laughs> um, so I, I have the, you know, I, again, there's a few performers in the audience. And do you know offhand the, the biggest audience you've performed in front of? For biggest performance ever? Yeah. Biggest. Uh, a live audience. Yeah. You know, I never did like the, the 80,000 uh, that a couple of WrestleManias have done, so I've done a handful of 65,000. Okay. Uh, but oddly, uh, when I was at the uh, Tokyo Dome in uh, 1995, we 
we had 64, 65,000 people out there. And at that time, it was the largest paying crowd to ever watch a, 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 a pro wrestling show. Uh, I almost single-handedly closed the show because we tried to light a, a board, bar board on fire. And I didn't know that was against like the fire codes. <laughs> and our owner was so upset that when uh, we returned from uh, the match, he proceeded to slap the referee several times across the face. The movie had nothing to do with it. But even before I went out, as I'm waiting there on the ramp, I was thinking more about the show in front of 1,000 people that we were going to have at the ECW arena. And so again, it goes back to like that feeling and that mood and being able to create emotions. Can I say, you know, it's funny that in the um, in the uh, Stan magazine, I'm listed under the cabaret section. I am. It's not under comedy, um, but we have people who uh, dance, or we have singers. We have singers. We have right? cabaret performers here. We have singers. We have magicians. Of course, we have. I can't see. And you've got your comedian over there and street performers. I'm. I know when I went to the theater and saw the, uh, the play Fosse with my wife, that it was tough for me to enjoy because I was watching the dancers drop to their knees on that hard floor. And I said, oh, God, don't they know how much that's going to hurt? <laughs> and uh, and, I, and so I could, I could feel for them. And whenever I see somebody doing something that, you know, puts them through a lot of pain, uh, things especially I know are going to have lasting effects, I always want to make sure they understand the consequences of their actions. It's, it's an interesting thing that, I mean, you are renowned for injuries. Almost. Yes. Um, and, and obviously, you know, that's not good. It's not good to be injured. But I, I mean, maybe, this is, maybe I'm wrong. I think there's something almost noble about sacrificing parts of your physical self for your audience, for your craft. Either that or these people are just sadistic. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what, I mean, I, mean I, I tried a lot of things and some of them didn't work out and I just honestly would hope that when they didn't, it would be on video, you know, so that I could have it. And, and, and that's one of the differences between, uh, you know, wrestling and, and comedy is that if something didn't work out, you know, it might as well fail spectacularly you might as well have it, you know, on video in a way that makes somebody look good. Whereas, uh, you know, especially if you're in the fringe, a you don't want to fail, and b you want everybody to forget about it as quickly as they can. So I'm a, kind of at a dilemma because I'm like, I'm here in Edinburgh, like I want to do new stuff, like I want to, you know, I have ideas, and then I have people like Brendan Burns like yelling at me in Montreal, you don't debut new material, Montreal, you know, same thing as. Edinburgh, like you try to go with stuff that's seasoned, you know, <laughs> stories have been told. But I've got, like I'm gonna tr try to tie in um, uh, my, my uh, trip to India uh, and the overwhelming uh, grief I felt at seeing uh, all the kids in the street and how I was uh, emotionally supported by an adult film star uh, she was there for me, you know, and I was really down. It turned out she had been a missionary before she became an adult film star. And it's like, wow, I am so lucky to have that unique crew of friends. Somebody who actually understand how much it hurt me to see these kids, you know. And then I'll try to turn that, and then I'll try to take a personal story and then turn it into an experience of the French. And I don't know if it'll work. But I know if I don't try, if I just go out there and tell stories that I know are going to work, I'll feel a little less of myself. So, yeah. 
Just want to let it hang out a little bit. Let's go on a quick look at the uh, stopwatch here and see how long we have left in the... Oh, that's okay. Okay, I think we have a little time for some questions from the crowd. So, if you want to ask Mr. Foley a question, put your hand up. Nobody. Really? <laughs> this telephone? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, it was only like in the last year and a half that I realized that people were saying, "Oh, you're limping," you know, limping, huh? Every single time they saw me, I, as somebody says that all the time, and it, it's just become my way of walking. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's you know that unfortunately is you know uh, you know pretty bad back injuries compounded by. <laughs> by knee injuries, and uh, and there's no real simple answer for how to uh, you know to take care of them. Um, again, you know, I, people should know the consequences of their actions. And I like, for example, I always thought when I was dropping the elbow off the side of the ring apron that it would be the outside of my hip I'd have to deal with. And I thought, well, that's a simple hip replacement, you know, like. That's <laughs> <laughs> like. What sort of job do you have? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a simple hip replacement. But here's the problem. It wasn't a simple hip replacement. It's not because I didn't understand that every time I hit that concrete, my inner bones were grinding together. And so now not only do I have this unusual injury, but like when I talk about it, it's like kind of a gross sounding injury because I'm like, yes, my pubis and ischium bones. <laughs> They're not even cool sounding bones. Uh, the pelvic girdle is all messed up. So, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. I knew there'd be a price to pay for taking my moves outside on the concrete because I knew that that was kind of loopholeless. You know, that the same kids who were like me who would look through their DVDs, you know, before they were even DVDs, VHS tapes, trying to figure out how they did these things. Cause that's the way I was. I was always, you know, really fascinated by the moves I couldn't figure out. And I had the great idea at like age 19 to just create a style with no loopholes, you know. Like, and the way I did that was that everything I did really did hurt, you know. Like, and if it hurts enough, they'll believe it hurts a little. And that's what I did. And then, all, you know, when I got to be like 30, I was like, what was I thinking, you know. Uh, by then it was too late. Anybody else? Oh, now it's open. Okay. How would you compare the experience of performing at ECW with the small, dedicated, knowledgeable crowd to the experience of performing at WWE with the massive, epically huge yeah. crowd? Yeah, it was it was quite a bit different. Um, I, I had some some of my best interviews where I was lashing out at the ECW fans. Like I'm a guy, I'll probably go. Uh, you know, my whole set, I try to just save up two F-bombs, you know, for my whole set of comedy. It's pretty, pretty good. Uh, and, and I rarely use the F-bomb in real life. Once in a while as an action verb. <laughs> I spice things up a little bit. <laughs> but I remembered uh, a guy named J.T. Smith had fallen off the uh, top rope, and when he did, his, like, he landed on his head, his head swelled up immediately. And the fans were chanting, you effed up, you effed up. And, uh, and when I had a chance to do an interview, I mean, I, I let things build, which wasn't a healthy way to deal with it. Let me let things build up so I can let them out in interviews. You know? <laughs> but I had that outlet. I remember how good it felt, you know, because I knew they would just beef it. But it was like, you know, you, 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 I told the story, and I said, here's J.T. Smith. 
human being with a family whose head swells up and you can't, you effed up, you effed up. F you. Like to say the F bomb and mean it and to have people know I meant it, that I really meant like F all of you, is really cathartic. Uh, <laughs> and, and so even though I, I, I love the, uh, I, I did I love being there, I love the creativity, that side of the fans that wanted so much more um, than I thought was necessary, while knowing that deep down they weren't going to care at all that there just be another body. Like I, I was talking about concussions in, you know, in 1995, you know, 15 years before most other people in sports were talking about it. So uh, I did, I did, I loved being there. It's a love-hate relationship, you know? Kind of like that thing I have with Vince McMahon. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think I have time for one more question. Uh, I think there's a lot of, like in the wrestling fan community, there's a lot of nostalgia for the Attitude Era, which obviously you're a massive part of. And do you think that the way that professional wrestling is going now has changed and lost something? Or is it just that it's become much more respected? Well, I think people always look back on the periods they enjoyed uh, through rose colored glasses. There was a lot of crappy stuff <laughs> in the Attitude Era, also. You know, if you went back to them, oh, geez, what were we thinking, you know? <laughs> like, the woman who could swallow the world's largest sausage on Raw, like, I guess maybe you could hire her for one of the, oh, she could swallow an 18-inch sausage. Like, why did we even have her on the show? Uh, like, she didn't make the best of Raw. <laughs> and there was a lot of stuff that wasn't good. There was a lot of stuff that was great about the Attitude Era, and guys had the, you know, they were allowed to create more instead of, you know, reciting things that had been created for them, and I think that made for great performances. But I, I like the PG era. Uh, a, I understand that it brought in a lot more sponsors. I know it was really frustrating when our show was doing these dynamite ratings, and we could not get sponsors. Like, people, you know, reputable companies didn't want to be associated with us. And the other thing I like is that I can be away from home, and I don't have to worry <laughs> But my kids watching sexual chocolate on TV, you know, and they said, oh, man, don't, don't let the kids watch that. And sure enough, like his wife, Mae Young, gave birth to a hand, you know. So there was some weird stuff on TV. Not all of it was as good as we remember it being. I have one final question. Yeah. I think you are fairly unique in that when you were young, you had a kind of a, a dream to be this, and you totally achieved it, probably surpassed what the teenager you would have dreamt. Yes. So, is it as good as you dreamt? You know, it, it really was. It did far exceed everything I'd ever done. And then you realize, you know, at a certain point, you're like, okay, now, now I've done that. Like, what's, what's next? And I know, for example, like there are people who will only want to see me in a wrestling context. Like, and they're really not interested in this comedy thing, even though it's more accurately an evening with Mick Foley. Like, not every story I tell has to be funny or is designed to be funny. But there are some people like, no, we want to see you in wrestling. I'm like, I'm wrestling. I, got, I enjoy it, but I'm not really creating anything, you know, anymore. Uh, I mean, I, I, I did come back as dude love for Raw's 1,000th episode, and it was fun. But that's not the type of thing that's going to keep me up at night thinking, okay, how can I, you know, 
how can I do more bad dance moves? <laughs> So yeah, I, I, it was everything I wanted it to be, but I think a lot of people have trouble in their post-dream life, you know, yeah. whether it's gymnasts or figure skaters, you know, I, I watched the Olympics with a little sadness, because I'm like, okay, her life just peaked at 16, you know? And in, uh, in the U.S., with such an emphasis on American football, you're like, here's these kids, and their lives are peaking at 17 or 18 when they're seniors in high school. And, they, you know, lots of guys have to learn how to pick up the pieces and you know, go about the real, you know, the real arduous work of, of having a real life. So, it's uh, it's it, it's not it's a, it's not easy. I mean, the dream thing was great, but uh, I'm like, wow, I got like 60 more years to live. You know, I have to find something to do. And and that thing is doing stand up here at the French. For now, it is. You know, I might I might be on to something else. Uh, I might come and take your job. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you're here for four nights. Just four nights. Opening yeah. tonight? Opening tonight. If anyone wants to go, uh, I believe Friday and Saturday are sold out. So if they want to go to the assembly rooms uh, tonight, uh, I think it's 1020. Uh, please please stop by. I think there's about 100 and something tickets left uh, on each of these nights. Oh. Oops. That was <laughs> well, I think, um, I think we're going to wrap it up now. So ladies and gentlemen. Do, do the ladies here have any questions? <laughs> Because I'm always interested, like I said, in faces, and you've got very inquisitive looks. Do you have any questions? Are you sure? Uh, did you know I was the only guy in the world you can Google using the terms? I want you to check this out, okay? Hardcore legend, hell in a cell, and feminist. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it was my pleasure, Mr. Mick Foley. And that's all from this episode of The Varieties. I hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I'd like to thank Mick Foley for the interview. I'd like to thank William Regal for helping set it up. And of course, thanks to the excellent audience that gave Mick such a great reception. Also, big thanks to Walker Slater for my suit. To find out more about Edinburgh's finest tailors, go to walkerslater.com. And to find out more about me, go to mattricardo.com and follow me on Twitter at mattricardo. That's one T. And if you enjoyed this, please do take a minute to leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. But for now, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.